Hello and welcome to the Art of Business Conversations that we are recording at the World Economic Forum Annual Meeting 2023 here in Davos, Switzerland. My name is Tim Lebrecht. I'm a co-founder and co-CEO of the House of Beautiful Business. And my guest today is Kim Davs. Hey, Kim. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us on this early morning. I, I don't think you, your uh, way here was actually, you walked here, right, from your apartment. It's not too far. Not too far. It's it's early. And we're at the um, the Heimatmuseum, as it's called in German, the Museum of the Home. So it's a place that actually chronicles the history of, of Davos and uh, examines, I think, ideas of belonging, which is also the segue over to your work, Kim. So Kim is the VP of uh, ESG and Social Innovation at Steelcase. Steelcase is, uh, with more than $5 billion in revenue, um, founded in 1912, so really a proud history of more than 100 years old, headquartered in, in Grand Rapids in Michigan, is the world's largest manufacturer of office furniture and partitioning systems and office designs. So chances are, if you're listening to this, that you have probably used or sat in a Steelcase designed office at some point during your career. So Steelcase has a tremendous amount of, of influence and impact on our day-to-day -day work experience on belonging and how we belong and relate to our work through design and through furniture in particular. Um, and this is uh, what we want to talk about with Kim. Kim, you also have a really interesting personal history. You're working on a book about belonging. We'll talk about that as well. But let's maybe start with Davos and your experience so far. We're three days in. Is that right? Yeah, three days in. And people always talk about the Davos moments. So what were some of the Davos moments for you? What stood out for you so far? Some of the, the key takeaways or key themes that you've picked up on? Oh, there are so many. Um, this whole experience has been such a humbling experience coming here, um, being with some some of the world's greatest thinkers, some of the great, the greatest leaders. Um, and at these moments where these convenings take place, I think those moments where people can sit down and have a conversation to really see each other and understand what's happening in their world and finding moments for intersection and those conversations that I've had with people have just been delightful. Um, there's also this moment for reflection but also urgent action. So uh, meeting people and understanding um, that other leaders are also committed to action on behalf of people, on behalf of our planet, um, really is a, is a key takeaway for me. This is the second time the, the annual meeting is taking place after the pandemic. Last year it took place in the summer, and usually in May in Davos. This year it's back to its uh, winter Uh, season um, occurrence and the pandemic and of course also the war in Ukraine are still very dominant themes and the other big one is, is arguably sustainability. So what what are some of your observations? Like what did people talk about? What are the the big themes that, that uh, shape the conversations here? Yeah, I think there's a, a, a consensus around the fact that it's not enough. And this is a moment we're at a tipping point where either urgent action needs to happen um, or we're all going to be left behind, the planet included. So I think um, having those conversations about what are those scaffolds, what are the things that business can do, what are the things that governments can do to actually ensure that the action is, is transparent 
it's um, it's done in collaboration. It's more of a we um, than an I. Uh, those are the things that are key takeaways when we think about what needs to be done um, and how we can actually come together to achieve those goals. We're constantly um, inundated with the facts and the stories and understanding from community to community, um, the need for environmental sustainability, the need for inclusion, um, and for the, for the conference, for the gathering and convening here, um, to see that uh, is, a, is a really key moment for, for what we need to do next. Certainly ESG, so the latest big acronym that Business Mainstream is, has jumped on really has been a very dominant theme here. You have that in your title, which is quite unusual. What was that role actually created for you? Were you the first VP of ESG and social innovation at Steelcase? I was. I, I'm so grateful to Steelcase for having that lens to understand um, that representation matters, not just with individuals, but also um, understanding that these words matter. Um, it, it is a reflection of who we are, our values, um, and what's important to us as a company. Uh, we've always practiced sustainability. We've always uh, designed the future of work for people. Uh, but having roles like this, having a focus like this, um, to me, champions the ideas uh, of what we need to do and who we need to be. Let, let's unpack that a little bit, because for me and maybe some of our listeners as well, ESG, while understanding on a very superficial level, is still somewhat opaque. So what is the difference to what was popular as corporate social responsibility, CSR in the 80s or 90s in previous decades. And, and tell us a little bit more about Steelcase's ESG strategy in particular. Yeah, I mean, our strategy is rooted in better futures. Everything that we do, we design the future of work and, and we started to really explore the question, what is better and what is better and who is who is really benefiting from that better? And when we started understanding that foundation, not only could you take um, the past approaches to corporate social responsibility, but you could start to, to really talk about it in new ways, um, start bringing that back into your own systems. And for us, the integration was key and critical, but, but also sharing that with our clients and in our communities was also key and critical to part of that momentum because no one can do any of these things alone. Mm. But how do you formalize it within, like how have you actually implemented ESG across the board in terms of your products and services or your business strategies? What does it mean like day to day and what does it mean for people working at Steelcase and your customers that you have now ESG is, you know, guiding principles and, and actually codified as well in terms of metrics, right? Yeah, um, it's a, it, once again, sustainability has been part of our values um, for many, many years. Um, it's been stated externally that this is the thing that matters to us. This was a great way to start to bridge that, that gap uh, of understanding and starting using language and, and common understanding for people to see that. Um, embedding ESG has been something uh, that's been so core to who we are, whether that be in our PDNL process, our product development and launch pro pro process, whether that be in our talent management strategies, whether that be in um, our disclosures, transparency, making sure that what we're doing isn't just compliant, that we're really setting the benchmarks uh, for people um, to both 
disclose transparently as well as create this culture of trust and transparency. I think all of these things are key and critical um, for us at the corporate level, but every day, every single person has a role to play in ESG. Um, and I try to help people, uh, not just our employees and not just our communities, but people at large really see ESG as just a common language and it's the common language for right now. Mm -hmm. Just like CSR was the acronym 25 years ago. And I hope in another 25 years, people will just be talking about impact in this ESG uh, acronym will start to dissolve because this is just run the business. And when it gets to that point, when we can start to see all of these metrics, all of the progress um, being shared equitably, not just within our own company, but across companies, it helps communities understand how to actually view impact through a very, very transparent lens. So ESG have gotten a lot of traction uh, and is really the talk of the town here in Davos as well. But there's also been a, a fair amount of, of skepticism and criticism, even like pushback lately. And ironically, it's coming from two sides. On the one hand, in the United States in particular, it's conservative Republican governors uh, questioning it, saying it's a distraction from what businesses should really focus on, which is maximizing shareholder value. And it's a distraction and blaming woke culture for this distraction. And on the other hand, uh, there, there are sort of members of the woke movement, uh, conscious consumers and citizens saying, well, this is just another window dressing effort. It's cosmetics. It's another acronym. It gives companies a nice sort of back out. Uh, you produce nice reports and those metrics, but at the core, you know, nothing is fundamentally changing. So, so what would you respond and, and how big of a setback is it that there are now more critical voices? I don't know if it's a setback. Doesn't make my job any easier, I can tell you that. <laughs> but I don't know if it's a setback because you have to listen first to understand there's always truth in every spectrum. Um, when you talk about one end of the spectrum, saying that it's a distraction from profit, when you start to have to make a business case for human rights, when you start to have to make a business case to preserve and uh, protect community, um, that's not a world I want to live in. That's not a world we want to live in. And on the other side, if we stop all progress from happening, if we can't um, see the we in the process and understand the collaboration that's needed, um, we're never gonna find that momentum that we need to push this work forward. And I always think that the people on the far end that are so passionate about this topic, I'm so thankful for them because they push us farther and faster. And for the people that are, I call them as sisters and resistors, the people that are resisting also push us farther and faster because they help us build that language that helps make sure that we can democratize all of our actions. And, and you see the sector, the corporate sector, the ones that are actually leading these charges and the ones that are leading, uh, leaning into their values, um, no matter what both are uh, saying on either side of that spectrum, um, they're really using both of them for springboards for change. Part of your title is also social innovation, so the S in, in ESG, if you will. Tell us more about social innovation and, and um, how that is embedded in your work, but also the overall work and uh, the products of Steelcase. Yeah, it, when I um, joined Steelcase for the social innovation role, 
Um, we used to call it CSR. Um, and it was at a moment in time where we understood that there needed to be a shift in a business model. We were always committed to community, but the way we show up in community and for community, uh, it was a moment for a redesign. And I love that moment to actually go and listen to the voices of communities where we live and work um, and co-design. If, if companies are gonna come in and wanna partner with you, what does it mean to be a partner and how can we best serve community? Um, and in those moments, uh, we realized, one, yes, it's really the people closest to the issues are the ones to design the issues. The only purpose of power is to share power with others. And we need to listen first to understand because we can only design with people and not for people. Um, so we took a community-first approach through social innovation, really transitioning CSR from a transactional model um, of, of philanthropy to really taking an embedded and integrated role. Um, that leads to the transformation. Um, so we started shifting and changing how we showed up in community. Uh, we started democratizing impact uh, for our employees throughout the world. And it, it changed our relationship and it helped us focus in on, on what are those themes, what are those insights we can learn from communities and how can we leverage and be a springboard for that change and then share that with others so they too can learn. So that's been a, a beautiful journey and we're still on it. This is forever work. Um, it may be called social innovation today, it may be called ESG today, um, but hoping that over time it will transform to the next. And how do you, um, how, what do you do every day? Like, how do you uh, allocate your time? So how much of your work is uh, stewardship, ambassadorship, uh, public speaking, representing um, the ESG and social innovation strategy of Steelcase? And how much time do you spend on uh, projects with your product development teams, with the community, uh, really in the organization, in the product teams, the designers? Yeah, I think um, it depends on the day. <laughs> Um, every day is different, uh, but what we try to do truly uh, is really embed that. This is a, a scalable model that hinges on me being present um, is not one that's going to be successful. So we really take a learning organization approach. How can we help people understand what ESG is? How can we help people see and understand uh, the role that they can play in advancing towards those goals and what are the innovations that they see that we could never see. So we talk about that with our 11, 12,000 employees throughout the world. Um, it's you who's gonna go into community. We talk about that with our designers. What's our sustainable design framework? It's not just held with one team, it's held with multiple people throughout. And if you can provide and co-design those frameworks, um, then everything from supplier sourcing into operations everyone's gonna be able to see the innovation that gets us closer to those ESG goals faster than anyone could. Even though I wrote a book called The Business Romantic that uh, is, was kind of a tirade against this obsession with quantification, I am interested in the metrics of your role in particular. So what are some of the performance metrics that you measured against? That's a good question. Because I think those shift for me as an individual. Um, one of the things, so ESG, we have that social, social pillar. Um, one of the things that we did is really take an impact coaching approach um, to say, hey, we're not going to have an annual review once a year. And either you hit your uh, performance metrics or you don't. Um, it's less of a command and control model. And it's more of a, hey, 
leaders, employees, everyone needs to come together and partner and coach each other towards those goals. Now, I think we have organizational goals that we want to hit um, because, like we talked about earlier, that transparency is key. So we talk about our carbon goals. We talk about our social innovation goals. Um, and part of that, uh, my life before Steelcase was in the nonprofit sector, in the public sector policy. And one of the frameworks that they built in was called a theory of change. And if you work in the nonprofit sector, you know very well what a theory of change is. If you work in the corporate sector, it's not as much talked about. And we brought that in and we started embedding that into different projects, into different verticals to say, hey, we're not just looking for data and metrics. We're not just looking for the outputs, not even just the outcomes. We want to get past the transactional and really head towards that impact. So uh, for my role, we really take a look at external sources, the UN Global Goals, GRI, all of these others um, that give us a little bit of a North Star for stretch goals. And then we try to disclose against those. And I would say uh, the accountability holds within, of course, my leaders. Uh, we have board oversight. Um, but also to our employees and to the community to say, hey, um, when we talk about social impact projects, what's that theory of change? And I'm not going to dictate what change is needed in an organization, in a community. They're going to really share what impact looks like and then progress against that impact. And that, to me, is what I measured against. Being so close to... to workplaces. Um, I imagine that, that Steelcase as a manufacturer of physical uh, office places has been affected somewhat by the pandemic and this ongoing shift towards uh, an at least hybrid work environment, more remote work. So how has that changed Steelcase's strategy and how do you personally envision the future of work given what you're seeing in the market right now? Yeah, I think... Uh, Part of the shift, uh, and we're seeing, and we're not through it yet. This is the, I think, uh, some people think we're, we're through the pandemic, it's over. Um, but the actual cultural implications of work and workplaces is definitely down over. And what we would have said six months ago or what we would have said a year ago is shifting quickly. And part of that, I would say, from a strategy perspective, is that we've always been focused on um, hybrid work because we knew that the world was going there. But we also have been focused on human connection and human well-being. And what does that look like and feel like in a workplace? And I think the world is waking up to that, to say, oh, yes, at our core, the work experience that we want is actually rooted in our culture. And part of that culture is about how people communicate. Part of that culture is how people connect. And we talk about workplaces earning the commute because you have to earn that commute because each individual is longing for something. And usually that longing has to do with something incredibly individual. So when companies can start to, to root their hybrid future or their future together, um, what are those spaces? How do you make them hardworking for what people want and how they gather? And we're seeing a lot in the world of, of that connection, of that gathering, and that's what people are missing. So this, this longing for purpose and, and belonging at the workplace is well documented. 
Um, at the same time, research also shows, looking at the Gallup survey and uh, all the writing now and the observations in terms of quiet quitting, that the majority of the workforce worldwide is not fully engaged at work. Rather, you know, is not really wanting to to show up at work. And then the quiet quitters uh, are basically now have come to the conclusion that they don't have to outperform or don't have to give everything. Right? They can kind of cruise, and they no longer want to devote themselves and their lives to an employer. I wonder how that affects Steelcase and also how much responsibility Steelcase has in terms of creating a work environment where we don't see these phenomena. People are more engaged and more happy at work. Yeah, happiness at work is, is key and critical. I was just um, at a talk uh, and they were talking about global engagement, employees, all of these things. And what I find really interesting are some of those markers of engagement. Um, it's not just productivity, it's not these other things. Uh, one of the things that boost employee engagement is if you have a best friend at work. Some of the things that boost your engagement is how people gather. And I think when we look at the future of work, understanding how people do their best work is part of it. And if employers and if companies can come together and say, what is it that actually helps enable people to do their best work, not how are we gonna extract more work, but how can we really elevate the role of individuals? How can we make them central to, to who we are? Um, you're going to see all of those engagement markers start to shift. Um, I think it's our responsibility within Steelcase is, is to understand what really boosts engagement, what really boosts well-being. And we have a ton of research, beautiful research from throughout the years on employee engagement and well-being and how to build those cultures of belonging. Um, and, and those are the things that if you can build a foundation of why people come to work, how to actually uh, root in those same principles, uh, I think why people gather and where they find their purpose and how they communicate um, is critical. We see that in leadership spaces often. So we're, we're in a shift, right? Where the employee voice is being democratized. And this is a beautiful thing. And when we started doing research on leadership spaces, when you think of older organizations or more traditional organizations, we saw that, um, say, you walked into an, uh, a building and you'd have to go up 20 floors and then go behind a couple um, uh, uh, gates or benchmarks, or these moments where they're saying no our executives actually need to be behind closed doors and special spaces that people didn't have access to. And one of the things that we tested um, pre-COVID years ago is what would happen if we took leaders and actually put them in the flow of work. And so we moved all of our leadership spaces uh, into actually an intersection of where the majority of our employees pass through. Because the transfer of trust, how people are engaged, how ideas thrive, are not always in the big, huge strategies, which of course are important, they're the North Star, it's in those informal interactions that happen throughout the workday. So if I'm standing next to Sarah, who's our CEO in the coffee line, or if I'm walking um, to my next meeting and we're walking together because I bumped into her in the hall, those moments when you need to share ideas, where you need that psychological safety, um, those become so much easier and that's the role that space can play. 
is if you can intentionally understand what is the culture shift that you're going for. Is it innovation? Is it ideas? Is it trust? Is it psychological safety? Um, space can actually shape the behavior of how an organization moves and really enable that flow to happen. Belonging is also really a personal um, topic for you. And in fact, you told me earlier that you are working on a book about belonging. Why is it so interesting for you? And how did you become so interested in, in belonging as a concept and how it manifests itself in the, uh, in, in the work life? I think during COVID, um, everyone had so much time to sit and reflect about what's that what's that red thread or what's that golden thread throughout their life? Where do I see consistency about topics or insights that I've learned? Um, Steelcase is in the corporate sector. The other organizations that I've been a part of have been in the nonprofit sector. And when I started really um, interrogating what those moments are that mattered to me, it was always creating communities of belonging whether that be in education, whether that be equity work, whether that be social innovation work or ESG, all of this to me uh, was my red thread. And, and when I started to take a look at that, I'm a Korean-born adoptee that lives in Germany. Um, and I always thought the world was made up of places I didn't belong. And what if... What if we could start to build places where people could walk in and authentically be themselves, could walk into inclusive spaces, could walk in to a room and feel like they were seen, heard, and valued for who they are? And I think with Steelcase, it's such a, a beautiful opportunity to really start to think about that and how we support clients and how we support workplaces um, and Part of our strategy is really uh, embedding belonging, not only in our own organization, but in the organizations of others. How old were you when you were adopted? I was just a baby. A baby, yeah. And then you moved to the States. You were adopted by an American family, grew up in, in Michigan. Yeah. And do you remember the first moment of your life when you felt you belonged? I don't know if I've really felt that way anywhere. I, th I think of myself as a cultural chameleon, so almost the not belonging in, in places um, has given me the opportunity to see the unseen. Um, when I'm with my team, I always feel like I belong. When I'm with my family, I always feel like I belong. Uh, but part of this research that we've been doing, um, you can create dynamic spaces, um, but fundamentally you have to belong to yourself first before you can discover others. So what is that journey uh, that individuals take so they can really show up for themselves as a leader, for their teams, for their community? Um, and that's been a beautiful moment. What, so you're working on this book, will, which will come out, I suppose, 2024, 25, if you're working on it now. What is, the, what is the one thing the world should know about belonging that it doesn't know yet? Oh, that's a great question. I don't think I'm that far into the manuscript. <laughs> uh, no, I think, I think truly that belonging, um, when you're designing for belonging, uh, you have to know yourself. You have to know your identity. Um, and the book explores the four identities that each of us has. Um, we talk about them as our lived identity. Um, what are those things that we're born into? 
These are the things that are origin stories, things that we can't change. What are our learned identities? What are our learned identities? What are the choices that we've made? Um, and in that moment, when you start to create what I call our loved identity, that's when you start to interrogate the systems, the cultures that we live in, to understand what are the stories we've been told about our identities? How are we accepting them? And then how can we uh, reshift and rewrite that narrative? You like living in Munich? I do. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful city. You moved there seven years ago, you said? Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Kim, um, thank you so much for stopping by and for this conversation. Really looking forward to reading your book. And uh, yeah, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.